Welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I am one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. Hey, Nathan! I am also one of your co-hosts. <laughs> uh, today we're talking about the occult. Yeah, but I think in a weird way, we've always sort of been talking about the occult. There has been this weird shadow throughout a lot of our previous episodes. It was sort of lurking there when we did the Hollow Earth. Okay. It was lurking there when we did the Illuminati and right. the Tillians, right? right? The Masons, of yep. course. I mean, our very first episode ever was Stargate Project. That's right. Uh, the shadow was already there. Weaponizing the occult. Weaponizing the occult. I love that. So that's what we're going to do today. Today is an episode where we're going to explain, well, what do we even mean by occult? Yeah. And of course, as academics, one of the first things we like to do is explain... What do we not mean right. when we talk about the occult? Well, strategically, in terms of our work, I think step one is really getting clarity on your terms. Because we don't want to start a podcast by saying, well, Lee, Webster's defines the occult. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> We're not doing that. So what is it not? Okay. Because here's the thing, like terms matter. Yeah. Because terms carry a, a kind of power with them, a kind of stigma with them. Mm. And so a word like occult, which has sort of ideas of you know, evil and yeah, mysterious. Satanism. Maybe. Satanism. You, yeah. can, you can use it to try to discredit other belief systems. The occult doesn't just mean somebody's doing something in their culture that seems weird to you. Okay. Because, of course, everything in every culture is weird. That's right. You often just notice it in other cultures, not your own, but your own is equally weird. Yeah. Uh, okay, so it's not just... Like, for example, I, I know this about your culture and your family. You put a tree up in your house <laughs> near the end of the calendar year. That's right. And and we hang things off of this dead tree, and sometimes we sit around it singing songs. It is a very strange cultural practice. Yeah, it You're, seems like the most normal thing in the world to you. That's right. But that's because from the inside, culture always looks normal. Yeah. I mean, weirdness ultimately is relative to your own belief system. Yeah. Okay, so the occult is not just weirdness. No, it, it can't be, because then everything becomes occult. Like, you have a, ba a Baptist who walks into a Catholic church, and they see somebody drinking wine, and it's blood, and right. it's like transforming into blood, yeah. and it's the blood of Jesus, yeah. and the Baptist and might be like... And you're supposed to eat that, you're, you're supposed to eat the eat wafer, the, which yeah. is the body of Jesus. And yeah. so a Baptist is going to see that and be like, well, those are some weird occult practices. Right. But then the Catholic goes into a, a Baptist church, and they're speaking in tongues, and they're sort of channeling spiritual beings, and the Catholic's going to say, oh, this is some pretty weird occult stuff. Right. Then, then they both go into a Shinto temple. Yeah, 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 and they have their minds blown. Yeah. So, okay, so maybe, though, it, it can or is sometimes used by certain people as a way of differentiating other belief systems out from what they do. Yep. It is a derogatory term for some groups to say, oh, you're, you know, quote unquote, meddling or just doing or whatever, obsessed with the occult. And in that sense, it becomes a kind of a derogatory term. Yeah. So I think one way to de-derogatory it or derogatory it <laughs> okay. is to let's look at what the word means. Like okay. the word technically means hidden. Okay. So if there's occult knowledge, if there are occult practices, the idea is that these are practices which 
have been suppressed, they've been hidden, and so much of the uh, sort of studies in the occult is an attempt to try to find these practices or invent them, depending on how you look at it, okay. and bring them out into the world. Okay. So what we're talking about then, occult knowledge and practices, we're talking about secret belief systems that provide alternatives to the dominant knowledge system, a.k.a. orthodoxy. Now, is there more to it than that, though? Because I feel like we have to add this, this, this dimension of the spiritual. Well, I mean, when we're talking about the kind of hidden knowledge, we have to be talking about the spiritual. Okay. Because if it's out in the world, if it's empirical, if it's something that you can see, if something you can measure and touch, it's hard for that to be hidden. Okay. Because it's out there. And so occult beliefs tend to deal not with what we can see and touch in front of us, oh. but this sort of other realm. Okay. I think this is another way that's sort of important to understand the occult is that the occult can sort of be seen as a reaction to two other dominant belief systems. Okay. Because the occult that we're going to be talking about, it basically shows up in the 18th and 19th century in America and in Europe. Right. And I would make the argument that that occult belief system that shows up does so uh, as a response to two massive, like, titans okay. of belief. Uh, on the one hand, we have the, the titan of doctrinal faith, and on the other one, we have the belief of scientific rationalism. Right. Okay. And then this becomes a sort of a third way, a kind third, of, sort of a, a third, third alternative between the two. Yeah. And a, a way that is sort of suppressed by those other two. Right. Okay. In different ways that we'll yeah, talk yeah, about yeah, in a yeah. bit. Okay. So before we then talk about this third way, we need to briefly talk about the first two ways, the, the first two belief systems, doctrinal faith and scientific rationalism. Okay. So why don't we start off by talking about what is this idea of doctrinal faith? Okay. Within uh, the Western intellectual, political, and religious tradition, you have the emergence of a kind of, well, what's known as an orthodoxy, a correct way of believing in the religion. Now, that might seem like a very familiar concept, but it's worth noting how weird that is. It's not something that is a fundamental part of other religions, necessarily. So, by contrast, anthropologists of religion take a look at, uh, say, for example, Japanese culture, where you get married by Shintos and you are buried by Buddhists, and there's Taoists who might, you know, come in and do some other ritual or be present for some other part of a momentous part of life. The notion that you could be both a Shinto and a Buddhist in Japan is not as uh, strange an idea as it is that you could say be a Christian or and a Muslim in a Western Christian-centric way of thinking about religion. What you believe is absolutely central, and you can only believe really one thing at a time. I've got a question then. Do you think that that's because the Western tradition is mostly monotheistic? Uh, so, yes. Like, does monotheism encourage that kind of... Because if you've got the one god, well, you can't have other gods. Well, on the one hand, you can have a version of monotheism in which your god is the best and the strongest. You might allow for other gods, but they're not as good as your god. They're like and, lieutenants. Exactly. So that version of monotheism can coexist or can tolerate other belief systems. And maybe an early form of Judaism was like that, where they're like, yeah, yeah, you guys got your god, but ours is the biggest and strongest and the best, and we just have one. 
there are, though, uh, within the history of Christianity, this notion uh, emerges that uh, we have the true religion and all other religions are false. They're, they're not even partially true. They're not a developmental stages towards getting to truth. They're just fundamentally wrong. And I'm sure nobody cares about this, but I have traced this idea. Lee cares about it very deeply. Yeah, I trace this idea back to Augustine, one of the church fathers, uh, one of the doctrinal creators of Christian doctrine, in a sense, who is grappling— One of the the architects of what we think of as Christianity. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, And he is grappling with the fact that the Roman Empire has fallen to barbarians. And he argues that the reason this happened is because of not hanging on to Christianity by going back uh, from Christianity to a kind of paganism. He thinks that the Roman Empire is therefore abandoned by God and the punishment is the Roman Empire falls to barbarians. And so he does this whole thing about how there is one true religion, that's Christianity, and then there's everything else, which is just simply an illusion. But we, we kind of digress a little bit because I'm trying to answer what is doctrinal faith. Anyway. No, I, w- I would say at this point that <laughs> part of, this is my fault for asking Lee about doctrinal faith. So part of why that's so important, it's like, mm-hmm. let's figure out what Christianity is, is because there were all sorts of different competing versions of what that's Christianity right. could be. <clears throat> that's right. Like, I like to think of it sort of in the very early days of the earth when there was all sorts of just crazy animals living in the ocean. You've got Anomalocaris, like these weird like shrimp with things coming out of their face and, and giant <laughs> giant squids with shells. Nathan and is like in his happy place right now. Trilobites. <laughs> so many trilobites. And evolution is sort of kicking in and there's stuff getting weeded out and there's stuff that's doing well. And But in that sort of early stage of life, there's just so much space for different things to be tried. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. So at the beginning, there's a lot of different interpretations of Christianity. They are wildly different from each other. And it's, you know, if anybody is interested in the history of religion, Christianity, look at some of the early interpretations. I mean, you have stuff there that sounds a lot more like New Age spirituality, that sounds a lot more like Greek philosophy. I mean, it's it, it just covers the gambit. And it's really interesting. I know, Nathan, you really uh, are taken by the Gnostics. I am. Well, uh, we'll talk about them in a second. But there is actually, at the time when the Roman Empire first flirts with actually making this the state religion, um, this is under the rule of Constantine. And there, there is a need then, if this is going to be the state religion, for there to be clarity on what it actually is. And Constantine calls into life a a scholarly body whose uh, mandate is to figure out what it means to be a Christian. I mean, if we want to have a baseball league, we're all going to have to figure out what the rules of baseball are. Exactly. And maybe that's something you do by committee. If there are various regional ways of playing baseball, you might have to get together if you want a national league and say, okay, in the national version of the game, we're going to interpret the rules in this way. Three strikes and you're out. Exactly. None of this eight strikes nonsense. So they call this council together. They get a whole bunch of bishops and leaders in the church. Real heavy hitters. Heavy hitters. They get them together. (laughs) And Constantine basically says, you guys aren't leaving until you figure this out. And so they come up with the 
foundations of what becomes in in uh, Europe and in quote unquote the West orthodoxy. But anyway, this is around 300, 350 something. Sorry, I didn't look it up just now. When this council first uh, meets, and they establish also the books of the New Testament. Because I mean, there were a bunch of there were a bunch of gospels. Yeah, that didn't make it in. There was the infancy gospel of Thomas yeah. about about Jesus as a little kid. Yeah. There was the gospel of Judas, which is wild. Wild. Which is, and maybe deserves its own podcast. Yeah. Because of the implications of the gospel of Judas, and so some of it gets booted out, and some of it gets brought in, and then what we end up with through this long, elaborate process. Yeah, exactly. We end up with doctrine. That's right. And then doctrine is sort of, it becomes a kind of an ideology, a state ideology throughout the European Middle Ages. There is a dominant religion and most people adhere to it. And there is a kind of a worldview that, that is widely, widely accepted that in a sense becomes orthodoxy. Yeah. And it matters what you believe because if you believe the wrong thing, you actually make your community vulnerable, so the idea goes, to evil forces like Satan. Satan can infiltrate your community if certain people in that community don't believe the right thing. So, so making sure that there is a certain kind of ideological coherence within your community becomes not just a matter of life and death, but a matter of after life and death. Exactly, like all eternity for, you know, utmost importance kind of thing. Stakes are high. Really high. So when our story takes place, which is again mostly the 18th and 19th century in Europe and America, we have had, for a long time, we had the one orthodoxy, which was the Catholic Church. But then, of course, we see this massive split, we see the Protestant Reformation, and we start to see like a kind of competition now that exists. No. What had been, they had a monopoly of knowledge, a monopoly of power. Yeah. And now, in part because, obviously, things like the printing press and people have more access to information and stuff, we see a fracturing. And, it, and it's almost like a, another one of those evolutionary moments where it's like, ooh, some space is cleared up. Right. We've got some competition now. Yeah. These kind of doctrinal splits and uh, disagreements were happening all the time because it was a question of utmost importance, more than life and death, all of eternity. I am betting on all of eternity, things going well for me or things going badly for me. And so whether you have interpreted the, the book correctly really, really, really matters. And so it's true you get the Protestant Reformation is a big split, but it's not the first time within the history of Christianity that people have been worrying about whether orthodoxy is actually the right interpretation. And the other thing that needs, I think, to be brought up is the fact that because the stakes are so high, we've seen often some fairly violent suppression yeah. of other belief systems. Yeah. We have the Crusades. We have Inquisitions. Yeah. Like, we do have these battles which were horribly violent, yeah. like lots of people killed over these rules, right. over these rules to try to establish doctrine. Exactly, exactly. So that's a, that's a powerful edifice, this sort of massive, it's going to take something extraordinary to, to shake up yeah. doctrinal faith. Yeah. And of course, we have that extraordinary thing in our, our second titan, which is scientific rationalism. Right. You have the beginnings of new approaches to figuring out what's going on. Now, is this actually a challenge to religion? That really depends on your understanding of religion. 
you get fast forward to the 20th century, you still have a lot of very serious scientists who also believe in God or who are in one way or another religious. So the very existence of science or scientific ways of knowing does not necessarily need to be a challenge to religion, but it really depends on what the function of religion is in your life and in your community. So a fancy scholarly word that I rarely get to use is etiology. Holy moly. I know, right? And this is a question of, these are stories for why things are the way they are. And if this is what religion does for you, like think about ancient Greek myths, you know, which talk about uh, why rain falls from the yeah, sky. Yeah, why that volcano explodes. Exactly, right? What they essentially amount to are stories like, oh, well, there was a god in the volcano who was woken up and got very angry about it and then had a temper tantrum. And if that's how your religion, if that's what its role is in your life, is to make sense of uh, the reasons things are the way they are, then science can actually be a legit challenge. Now, just quickly to suggest that religion can do other things for you. It could be a question Ethics. of... Exactly, or community, mm -hmm. or simply cultural memory, or cultural history, or some combination of those kinds of things. Just sort of comforting rituals and... You know? Yeah, meaning. Or, and if your religion is telling you the story of why things are the way they are then the scientific revolution is a big challenge because now we have a way of telling stories that make a lot more sense and, and when you believe in how science functions gives you the power over nature to reproduce some of these things. Yeah, because let's talk about the belief system of scientific rationalism. It's based on empiricism. Yep. The main claim is that things that happen in the world happen for natural rather than supernatural reasons. Yeah. So the volcano didn't explode because there's a spirit in the volcano who was angry. The volcano exploded because of plate tectonics and yeah. magma yeah. and these sort of measurable things that might not be visible to you on the surface of the earth, but you can, you can use experimentation and observation and measurements to kind of figure this stuff out. And when you say that these are better for explaining, it's because they're better for predicting. Yeah. You can use scientific measurements to come up with hypotheses and then you can test those. And when you test scientific hypotheses, they've probably got a bit of a better track record than some of the more spiritual based explanations for why things happen in the natural world. No. But the because these causes are natural, you can observe them, measure them, test them. But what this does is I, I feel like it starts to exercise a lot of the spirits from the world. And what you end up with, I would argue from a scientific perspective, is a materialist explanation of, of the universe. You don't have two realms. You've got the materialist world. You've got stuff that's made of stuff. And that's where it ends. And what that means for us then, so where is the soul? The sci yeah. science doesn't care about the soul. Uh, like where is emotion? Oh, well, that's this chemical and that chemical right, right, right. and this part of the brain's firing off. Yeah. You look at something, you're like, but I love this person. It's like, well, you have oxytocin for that person right, right, and, right. and some vasopressin. Yeah. And if we change your chemicals around, you won't. And so I think, well, science has been extremely helpful for helping us to predict things and helping us to sort of make the physical world around us. The, the worry is that at the center of the truth that science gives us is going to be something hollow. There's going to be something empty. And what that's going to be is that there is simply this world. Right. 
and that's the end of it. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're exactly right. And it, this accounts for a lot of the anti-modern reactions that you see. Dostoevsky is somebody who worries about this. Tolstoy, in fact, says science tells you everything about the world except the things that matter, like mm. how to live and, and what's the point and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, now, and, and science provides, I mean, science does sort of provide answers, but those are not answers that are going to be satisfying because for when it comes to why we exist that's when we bring in something like the theory of evolution. Yeah. And what the theory of evolution does, I think, is so threatening. Well, in the same way that when Copernicus and then later... Galileo? Galileo uh, established that, you know, the Earth isn't the center of everything. That was a really nice thought. Yeah. It's like, the, like, you look out into the sky and it's like, yeah, but we're the center of it and it's all here for us. Right. And then people look through their telescopes and they're like, wait, that doesn't make sense and this doesn't add up. And basically, they, they take us from the center of the Earth and they throw us off into just the trash the, pile that exactly. is the, the rest of the universe. Yeah, we're just periphery. So we're like, okay, well, that kind of sucked. But at least we, as humans, are still the center of the animal world. Like, right. we are still, like, this thing that is above uh, the other uh, animals. We well, have we're, we're separate from animals, we're separate, right? Like, Fundamentally. This, this place is here for us. Exactly. And to do with as we will and dispose of it as we will. Yeah. And so then the theory of evolution comes along and is like, well, you know, actually, it's because science is always well actuallying us. Yeah, exactly. So ev evolution's like, well, actually, like you showed up as humans because of a lot of, you know, coincidences right. and just sort of like historical events yeah. and natural selection. And, and you guys are doing well right now. Right. But look at like... Look at the dinosaurs. Look, you at, know? look at the trilobites. Yeah. My beloved trilobites. They were doing really well and they're all gone. Yeah. What does that mean for us if we're just another animal? In this in this marketplace competition yeah. ecosystem, yeah, it means that this isn't here for us. We showed up more for it, and we could also just be wiped off the face of the earth again. What one of the big social early sociologists of religion, Max Weber, um, talked a lot about this sort of demystifying of our our universe, really, and how a pre modern person experiences a world full of spirits and God or God and or um, God's agents, uh, the devil's agents, all Magic. of this. And, and, and after all these processes like the scientific revolution and the, and the Protestant Reformation and all of this kind of stuff that relativizes a lot of the claims of what used to be orthodoxy, we enter a realm in which, yeah, maybe personally you still believe this stuff, but as a culture, we have entered a kind of demystified, somewhat bland and gray universe. Uh, the world of material stuff. Yeah. So now here we are. <laughs> We've got these two massive, massive belief systems. Yeah. We've got... Okay, what's the route to truth? It's through doctrine. Right. It's through established doctrine. Yeah. We've fought over it. We've killed for it. We've right. established it. It changes sometimes, but this is it. Right. And then over here, it's like, no, no, no. The truth is empiricism and measurement and the scientific yeah. method. Both of those we've seen can be kind of unsatisfying to what, what we want and what we need. And so then in the 18th and 19th centuries, there's a, a few things, again, coincidences of history that sort of show up that I think push this occult third path along. One, and this is a bit of a challenge to Orthodox doctrine and Christianity, because Napoleon invades Egypt oh, at the beginning of the 19th century, we, we get this sort of big exposure of the West 
to ancient Egyptian culture. Yeah, and, and, and guess what? It's surprisingly cultural and sophisticated. Yeah, unbelievably sophisticated. Right? It's this like, huge, again, it's another elaborate, massive belief system. Yeah. But one that has nothing to do with no. the ones we understood. And, and they're building the pyramids when Europeans are still like running around with clubs and things like that. You yeah, know, like, and so, so clearly they had a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> and That's and so and so then and obviously this is filtered through Eurocentrism right, through sure. the European lens, but it's still kind of intriguing for people to be like, wait, so this was like an entirely different way of seeing the universe and our yeah. place in it, and clearly it was extremely successful and it was this massive society. So that happens, we start to see a renewed interest in things like Gnosticism, this sort of continued sort of attack on Catholic dominance that's been happening for a few hundred years at this point. Yeah. Like that's continuing. And there's two main occultist key players that I think if we talk about them briefly, it'll sort of help to explain this. There was a French occultist grows to prominence in the 1850s. Okay. Uh, Eliphas Levy. And he sort of represents this sort of dissatisfaction with doctrinal faith because he's actually training to be a Catholic priest. Oh, okay. But he's a troublemaker. Yeah. And he's asking a lot of questions. Okay. And doctrinal faith isn't necessarily open to the sort of questions that he's asking. Yeah. And so because of his dissatisfaction with doctrinal faith, he's like, what if there's another way? And so he pulls back, and then he encounters some of these sort of older ideas, mm. some Gnostic ideas, some, some interesting old Egyptian ideas. And he starts to kind of assemble a series of, of new beliefs okay. that bring in sort of elements from all sorts of different places. Mm. Same thing is happening uh, in America from a Russian immigrant named Madame Helena Blavatsky. Okay. Now, Blavatsky, she also has some issues with doctrine, but she's really worked up about the theory of evolution. She finds it really offensive. Okay. She, like, in her writing, she's often attacking evolution as, as this sort of, like, horrifying, inhuman idea that's that's tearing down what's special about us. Her main argument is that there was once an ancient religion, before all of the new doctrine, mm. there was an ancient religion that was the true religion. Uh -huh. And the religions that we're left with now, they have an aspect of it, yeah. they have echoes of it, yeah. but they're sort of corrupted and they've sort of lost some of that original okay. origin story. Her claim is that she has this revealed knowledge. How did she learn about this? This knowledge was revealed to her by these these sort of hidden masters. Mm -hmm. She claims to have traveled to places like Tibet, although there's a lot of debate whether she actually did or not. Mm -hmm. uh, that she has traveled to these places and that they have given her this true, true religious doctrine. Mm -hmm. And she borrows a lot from Eastern religions and philosophies, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism. But she doesn't just become Hindu. She doesn't become a Buddhist. Right. She's like taking a bit here. It's a real like food court approach to yeah. Eastern religions and philosophies. Uh, and she takes a lot from Plato. Okay. So not one of the Eastern philosophies, but this sort of idea that, you know, Plato's cave, that we live in kind of an illusionary world, that there's, right. there's two spheres, yeah, there's okay. a truer sphere and kind of the illusion world. This becomes something called theosophy. Okay. And she argues that the spiritual world, our spiritual aspects, are more permanent and real than the physical world. I would also just like to briefly point out that Blavatsky was also hardcore racist. Oh. And you know what we say here at the Uncover Up? What do we to say? people who argue that some people are less human than other people, we say, F you. <laughs> nice. You know, we don't swear a lot. I'm going to bleep it out. 
sometimes swearing it's especially effective if you don't do it often yep. and then you save it for that time when it's useful and yeah. I, I would agree with you that hardcore racists deserve a nice fuck you that's right one of the first time first times we will curse on this <laughs> podcast so here's another difference between what starts to form as the occult and doctrinal spirituality the promise of the occult is that with the proper knowledge and rituals, you can manipulate the spiritual realm, and then that will influence the material realm. There's a line in, in occult belief, as above, so below. Okay. And that's, I think, the most crucial line to understanding the occult, because what it's arguing is that there are two realms. There's a material world, all this that's, stuff. That's us. That's us. Okay. But there's also... Like mirroring that material world is a spiritual world. world. Okay. And the stuff that happens here affects the spiritual world, and the stuff that happens in the spiritual world affects the material world. Okay, so so I could then, if I knew the right ways to manipulate the material world, I could cause an effect in the spiritual world, which would then ricochet and cause another effect in the material world. And so I would be able to generate phenomena that I wanted in this way. Exactly. And, and gain power. So, for example, let's say, theoretically, <laughs> I wanted to hurt you. Okay. All right. So how do I, how do I hurt Lee? I would make a little doll out of you. Okay. Uh, and ideally, that doll should resemble you. Yeah, okay. To try to... So you'd buy, buy like a Tintin doll. Yeah, so basically, I get a doll of Tintin, <laughs> and then I'd already be all the way there. And But how does the spiritual world know it's me from well, all the other Tintin-looking people? That's a good point. There's a bunch of us. So to make that connection stronger between that doll in the physical world and the spiritual world... I would want something that was more connected to you, like okay. some of your hair or uh, something like that. So it's really, it's really driven home that this doll is so, a representation of you. So you get like you. some fingernails and some hair. Anything you, like that. You'd, you'd stick it onto the doll and then the spiritual realm knows that that's me. Yeah, it's, or it's, maybe I hide it in your house or something. Right, okay. And so then it's, it's then connected to you. And so then in the spiritual world, that doll basically is a mirror of you. Uh, and so then what I could do is I could take like a bit of a scratchy string and I would tie it around that doll's neck uh, really tight. And this would cause a mirroring energy in the spiritual world, which would then come back down to the material world and cause perhaps a persistent cough and post-nasal drip. Right, which I do suffer from. So yeah, if you could pretty... find that doll with the thing around its neck, I'd uh, appreciate it if you removed it. Never going to find it. It's buried um, so deep. Look, is this... I, I was thinking back on our Polybius episode, and I know that we're both not huge gamers, but in some of the video games that I've played, because I'm not a good gamer, I go and search out cheat codes. So these are kind of inputs that you can put into the game that give you powers that aren't really technically supposed to be part of the game. Unlimited lives, maybe. Exactly. Or super speed. Or, or like lots, of cash lots of cash in, in, in games where that becomes relevant. Mm -hmm. So it's so if you imagine the video game as reality, the occult, the promise of the occult is like getting cheat codes to reality, where you would be able to manipulate through, through specific inputs. Theoretically, anybody could input them, but you'd have to know what they are, just like real cheat codes, right? And then if you input those cheat codes, then you get the superpowers, the, the way that you're essentially hacking reality. Exactly. The occult are the, the cheat codes to the video game of the of material world. Okay. Precisely. Cool. So then let's, 
at this point, we've established what it isn't, and we've established what it is. So let's look at some of the practices okay. of, again, this specific version of 18th, 19th century occult, which I think is probably one of the more influential ones in our understanding of what occult means. Yeah. So let's start with astrology. Okay. This I, is one of the cheat codes. I know this one. Um, yeah, because, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> I did not know this. Uh, Lee and I have been working together for a long time. We've known each other for a long time, yeah. and yet he still continues to surprise me. Like, Lee contains multitudes. That there, is a sweet, that is very sweet. There are like two surprising things about me, and that's it. And once I tell somebody those two things, I'm done. Whereas Lee continues to shock <laughs> and amaze. And I just found out last week that you were huge into astrology. Yeah, so I, it's true. I've lived a couple of different lives, and... I guess what's unique in this in this way is that when I go and live a different life, it's very different from the previous life that I lived. And there was a period in my life around, I would say, the ages from, say, 14 to 20, 21 or something like that, when I was massively into mysticism, the occult, alternative medicine, the whole gambit. I was, I was, I went to psychics. I, I tried to, I had my horoscope done. I like learned tarot cards. I did meditation, but in a kind of like occult way, like things that are supposed to give you powers. So you were and, really trying to dip your toe into that spiritual realm. Yeah. I was like the, the, I'm going to get those cheat codes, suckers. I want those cheat codes. I want to, you know. And I want to beat this level. Exactly. I'm going to get there early. I mean, I then fell in love with an atheist who set me straight and things, things, she really impacted me huh. and she, you know, a couple of conversations like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. But anyway, so from the time when I was actually like deeply invested in this stuff, um, astrology, I was, I, I thought astrology was amazing. And the promise here is that you would get essentially, um, a map of your life including the places and times in which you would encounter obstacles and the places and times in which you would gain benefits and that you would be able to essentially prepare yourself or mitigate or ameliorate those uh, situations. So let's say your horoscope says, you know, in six months you're going to, you're, you may experience some significant relationship issues or physical health issues. You, you would be able to take steps now because you have the cheat codes to your life. You, you have this guide, um, this, this kind of map of how your life is going to unfold. And where is that map written? Right. It's written in the stars. Ah. So the idea being that depending on where and when you are born, the stars and the planets in the sky exert a force. Now, what is that force? And this is often the case when it comes to the occult. It's not like science. It's not mapped out. It's like there is a force. So later astrologers have said it's gravity. It's not, though. It's not. It can't be gravity in terms of scientific reading of that. But... That is actually a pretty modern, like, first of all, you need the concept of gravity to be able to say that. And astrology precedes the concept of mm -hmm. gravity by at least 2,000 years. See, so, but then this is, I think, where that two worlds concept comes in handy again. So what is the mechanism through which the physical stars affect our physical lives? Yeah. The physical stars have some sort of influence in that spiritual realm. Right which then mirrors... The operative, though, being some sort. Some sort. Some sort, right? Some sort. And often when you're dealing with the occult, you get a, a somewhat plausible explanation peppered with 
stuff like Nathan just said, some sort, some sort. of... Anyway, the idea being that you could discover through this ancient discipline what is going to happen in your life roughly so you can kind of hone in on the good things um, and, and lessen the bad things. Um, now, uh, it's interesting, I think it's interesting, that astronomy and astrology in the Western tradition start life as the same discipline. And they only become differentiated during the uh, scientific revolution. As of the 1600s, you start to see astronomy interested in things like, where is the Earth actually relative to the sun? And how come we see phenomena like the sun um, going across the sky or the phases of the moon? They get interested in that, and they answer those questions with more nature. So you're not allowed to say it's because God wanted it that way. Um, and then the astrologers, they go off and they're interested in you know, sort of these ancient mystic concepts of uh, Greek gods, Roman gods, uh, maybe even because it has its origins in Babylon and to some extent Egypt, maybe uh, the influences of these other systems. And they go into this highly kind of occultist spiritual direction. Yeah, astronomy, again, basically just concentrates on this physical world, as weird as the physical world is, because yeah. the physical world includes things like quantum theory and, and perhaps dark energy, dark matter. Like, it's still pretty weird out here, yeah. but it's still that physical world. Yeah. Whereas astrology is interested in mythology and meaning, like, astronomy doesn't care about the cosmic significance of where stuff is. Yeah. Just wants exactly. to know where stuff is. Exactly. The ancient astronomers slash astrologers were central members of their community because they were timekeepers. They yeah. were the only ones who knew the secrets to when you could actually plant crops that weren't going to fail because of a flash frost or something. Information that for most of us, if you are not an astrologer slash astronomer in the ancient times, is kind of guesswork. Yeah. And you kind of have to go by weather. Now, we're in... Uh, Toronto in March. It's beautiful outside today. I'm I'm essentially in short sleeve shirts. Uh, but you know, one thing I can tell you about March in Toronto is it always gets warm and it's always followed by a snowstorm. Yeah, and if you plant your garden in March because you say, oh, it's warm out today, exactly. you're a goner. Whereas an astrologer back then would have said, no, but look at where Orion is. You exactly. can't plant yet. And but and they would they would tell it. Exactly, in this, like, look at where Orion is chasing Taurus. You have to wait until he's closer to the sun or something. You know, you get these ancient ways of knowing is embedded in myth and in mythological thinking, but it also has a scientific application. And then, well, yeah. But, no, but these days, astrology and astronomy have totally parted, they've parted ways. Yeah, 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 they're totally different things. And, and, so, and in fact, I would say that astronomy is kind of threatening to astrology. And again, you understand this a lot more than I do, but astrology, the... The constellations are important, right? Yep. But the thing is, and it's going to blow some minds right now, those constellations aren't where we think they are. Because those stars are hundreds, thousands of light years away. And they're hundreds of thousands of light years away from each other. Yeah. They only look like they have any kind of spatial relationship from the perspective of Earth. Yeah, what we're seeing when we look at the sky is the past. Yeah. Like, Orion isn't there because, no. like, for all we know, some of those stars don't even exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. Because it took so long for the light to reach us. Yeah. And I, so I, isn't that a bit of a, an issue for astrology? There's a lot of issues from the scientific perspective of astrology. One is 
um, in science, you do need to come up with mechanisms of operation. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you can't just say this affects this. You have to be like, yeah, but how? How? how and does so it affect that? when you try then and, um, and bolster astrology with things like, well, it's gravity, well, that simply doesn't work because the biggest gravitational pull on the earth is the sun. And that doesn't factor particularly as a gravitational force in astrology. It's supposed to be the stars and the planets. Mm -hmm. The moon is the next biggest thing. Relative to this, what Mars is doing has like negligible impact on what's going on on the Earth. Yeah. Anyway, but you, I think, have a really nice uh, counterexample about... You weren't, you, aren't you born like essentially at the same time as yeah, your brother in law? My, my brother in law and okay. I were born on the same day, like in the same year. I won't say when, obviously, because because then, we're old enough to be shy about that, yes, because we like to protect <laughs> our privacy. But my brother in law and I are born the exact same day in the exact same year, and yet him and I are extremely different people, right. Like, like shockingly different people. Yeah. And so how does astrology then deal with that if the stars would have appeared the same, the planets right. would have appeared the same? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't we be the same person? My other question of this, and this is a very scientific question, is at what point did they do a massive survey? Right. And we're like, okay, when was everybody born and what are you like? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. To, to figure out, okay, people who were born at this time are like this, and people who were born at this time like this. But yeah, that's interesting you put it that way, because what you're asking for is for a scientific method in a non-scientific... Like, yep. their approaches to knowledge are different, right? Yep. It's, it's maybe revealed knowledge, which we've talked about in a previous podcast. It's maybe... And it, and it shows my biases. It yeah. shows my biases and how it's difficult for me to grasp something like this, because I have limitations in the way I'm thinking. Well... I mean, you know, we're both biased in the same direction. I think those little quote-unquote limitations allow you not to be distracted by a bunch of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although, I mean, it does have a real impact in people's lives. Yes. Well, so within the history... I mean, when Mars is in retrograde, people are like, look out. <laughs> yeah, like imaginary things can have a real-world impact. Yeah, for sure. Now, let, let's look at another one, because this, right, isn't right. only, this isn't the only cheat code. And we could talk for hours just on this idea, sure. but we, this is an intro episode. I'm a Taurus, by the way. And kind of similar to the way that like astrology sort of turned into astronomy and astrology. Okay. This is the one that eventually would turn into chemistry. Yeah. Because now we're talking about alchemy. Alchemy. So... Do you want to do this one? Do you want to tell us about alchemy? Yeah, all right. So alchemy, let, let's start with chemistry. We'll yeah, go okay. backwards. So chemistry is the study of the physical makeup and properties of matter. Right. Uh, it includes the way that matter can change through manipulation and interacting with other forms of matter. And again, it's based on like empirical observation and scientific method and experimentation. Describing the building blocks of the physical world is chemistry. Okay. And the heart of modern chemistry is the periodic table of elements, which sorts all of the known substances according to the atomic number. Uh, the number of protons found in the nucleus. So hydrogen's got one. Yep. Uh, helium's got two. Okay. Uranium, 92. Wow. It's got a lot. Glad I didn't say three. <laughs> <laughs> Way more. I don't know how many uh, anything else has. So, so chemistry tries to explain the building blocks of the world in kind of a scientific way. Alchemy also concerns itself with the way that matter interacts and changes. Yeah. But while chemistry is based in empiricism, alchemy, like astrology, is also rooted in mythology and spirituality and religion and etc. Yep. 
And while the heart of chemistry is a periodic table of elements, the heart of alchemy is sort of this poetic idea of the four roots. Right. Water, fire, air, and earth. Mm -hmm. The goal of alchemy isn't simply understanding the building blocks, but transmutation, transformation. Of course, the thing that people are always familiar with alchemy is this idea of turning lead into gold. Yeah. That's what everybody knows about it. But that wasn't really the main drive of alchemy. Right. But just to, to, to really hammer in on this cheat code metaphor, that's just awesome, right? I mean, if you, if you could go home and take a whole bunch of junk that people don't want and, and overnight turn it into gold. Yeah. I mean, come on. This is like what half my fantasies are made of. Yeah. You um, could see the appeal. If only we could figure it out. And great minds like Newton. Yeah. Spent a lot of time in alchemy. Well, in a sense, though, also from a from a kind of scientific, early scientific sense, this is not as bizarre as maybe it even appears to us today. Because it's like, yeah, things turn, like material things turn from one thing into another all the time. Baking soda and vinegar yeah. turns into a mess. Right. And wood and fire, it, that is a chemical reaction, right? Sure. If you burn it and yep. then you turn wood into ash, which is very different and different properties. Um, but I think, again, going back to this idea of the scientific method, if you try to explain these transformations using the periodic table in chemistry, you're going to come up with an explanation. Yes, in the 20th century. In the 20th century. Right, but, but this, these, I, that split between alchemy and chemistry happens way earlier, and I'm just suggesting that it's not as clear, say, in the 17th or 18th century that this is an occultist practice. No, because it's based on experimentation. Yeah. It's just experimentation that never seems to make any gold. <laughs> but this is the kind of more base, perverse version of alchemy. There is another interpretation of what yeah. this kind of transubstantiation of elements is all about. Yeah, what this transformation is ultimately about is not just the transformation of lead into gold. It's the transformation of the human, the transformation of the mortal to the immortal, and ultimately the transformation of like the human to the divine. Like alchemy, and we're talking about Western alchemy, there was also what some people referred to as alchemy in what, uh, like China and India. But yeah, the Taoists were big into alchemy. Huge into it, and mushrooms. <laughs> but that's a different kind of alchemy. That's so, were the, so were there some in the West, yeah. too. I wonder if there's an ultimate connection here. But, but that <laughs> has more to do with, like, that's medicine. That's medicine yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than, like, transformation into divine. I, look, I don't remember. I took a class on this. I do think that there was a kind of spiritual alchemy and Taoism. Yes, no, there definitely was. So now we've we've looked at the stars and we've seen our future. Yeah. We have mixed up some potions and become immortal. Yeah. Now we're going to get into looking at the matrix of the world itself. Yeah. And we're going to compare numerology with mathematics. Yeah. Okay, so mathematics, studying numbers, equations, formula, geometry, calculus, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like using pure reasoning to test abstract theorems. Yeah. Uh, then you can then apply those two real-life situations. Like, what's seven times eight? Why'd you have to ask me the seven times eight question? Of all the ones, they're the hardest. No? It's 56. I'm it is 56. Sure. There you go. I needed, though, that time of, of complaining. But to, that's an easy one out. to remember because it's <laughs> five, six, seven, eight. Oh. All right, so that's... That is a good way to... That, it is. That's, that's why it's always the example I use because I'm pretty sure that seven times eight is 56. So that's yeah, mathematics. That's but numerology, also the study of numbers, yeah. but based on the assumption that 
numbers also carry with them like a spiritual uh, importance, a significance as yep. well. Yep. So like mathematics will tell you that the number two is equal to one plus one. Correct. Thank you. Or three minus one. Yes, that's also correct. Or 30 uh, divided by 15. I how long it took you to go verify that. Wait, wait, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop. It's the square root of four. There you go. Okay. But in numerology, I'm going to read to you now, according to uh, Richard Cavendish, who okay. wrote an extremely influential book on, on, on the, the occult. occult right? mm-hmm. Okay. 1967, The Black Arts. And you think he is both a researcher and believer, although... Yep. His book is mostly a work of research. It's it's mostly a work of research, but he also seems to believe in some kind of power behind this. Uh, For example, I'll read you what he says about two. Okay. Two is the first of the even numbers, which are female and evil. The characteristics allotted to it are those traditionally associated with femininity, softness, sweetness, modesty, docility, and subordination. Yeah, okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Jeez. Maybe too much for our podcast Maybe right too now? much. Yeah. But, but this is sort of the main point I want to take away from that. And it's this idea that, but how do you know? Right. Like, that's where, that's where I always come back to with anything that's based on symbolism. But what is the connection? How do you know? Mm. This tells you something about the society that believes it. Right. And the author who writes and it. And the author who writes it. But it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the, the nature of two itself. Right. It also brings in this kind of thing that I get nervous about, which is essentialism. Okay. This idea that like two is the feminine and the feminine is these specific things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As though these things are just immutable laws that we cannot alter. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't know about you, but numerology is something that I've come across before when studying conspiracy theory. Yep. And it's always my least favorite form of evidence. So have we actually said what it is, though? Like, the idea, I think, is that you can divine, among other things, secret codes and messages if yep. you understand, for example, that letters correspond to numbers. Yeah, that's gematria. Okay, so this is, what, a subset of numerology? Mm-hmm. All right. And then what people have done is, say, take passages in the Bible yep. and see, well, is there kind of a, a secret hidden message under here? Is, is you know, is... The Lord speaking to those who know directly. And so your name would carry a secret code. And now I did the numerology for my name. Okay. And I ended up with 22. Okay. For some reason, 22 is one of the most powerful numbers of all. Ah. And so now I'm a believer. But what's interesting is that the way I arrived at that is I used my first name. Right, okay. I could have also added my last name if I didn't like the number I'd gotten. Right. I could have put my middle name in there if yeah. I'd wanted to. Yeah. And this is one of the issues with numerology is you're kind of picking and choosing. Right. It, it's sort of similar to astrology, only instead of looking to the stars to do your divination, you're looking to the numbers around you and trying to figure out, okay, think about all of the numerological uh, significance that people have read into something like the September 11th attacks. Right. As if part of the planning involved... Like figuring out the the, the secret significance of, yeah. of the, the of the flight numbers and yeah, things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But the truth is, well, my truth is okay. Not the truth. I'm not going to get that arrogant. But my truth is that you can kind of cherry pick, right? Sure. You can manipulate numbers yeah, 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 yeah. so that they end up meaning what you want them to mean. And I think that's also probably true of astrology as well, where the descriptions are often quite vague and general, and so you can read yourself into it or not as you want. I, I, I agree with you that numerology is my least favorite of the occult, quote-unquote, 
practices or sciences. Um, but I want to make a, 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 an attempt at a defense in a way, which is that math is also really weird. Sure. It's really weird in the sense that it is something generated by the human mind and yet seems to have predictive power about stuff we don't know about that we can test out in the real world. Yeah. I mean, in a way, math is sort of that sort of platonic idea of the two worlds. There's yeah. a sort of perfect abstract idea of mathematics, which we can then kind of apply down here and, and do stuff with, and, like and, engineering. And, and Plato actually said, only those who know mathematics may enter the academy. Yeah. So, so far, we've looked at three forms of occult practices, which all sort of have modern scientific rational versions. Yep. This one does not. Okay. Because now we're talking about theurgy. Theurgy. You got to tell me about this one. I don't know anything. Theurgy. Now we're getting a little bit dark. Now okay. we're getting a little bit towards midnight. Okay. Because now we are looking at rituals which allow the practitioners to commune with divine beings. Some Would that kind of... include like dead people? Or does no, it have to not be yet. Like... Oh, okay. No, no, no. Dead people are spirits. These are divine beings. I see. So this is like angels. It's angels or... Demons? Or demons. Okay. So these divine beings can then be asked to perform tasks. Ah. And I can then like, like, again, let's say I wanted to hurt Lee. Mm -hmm. So I could summon uh, some kind of demon okay. through, these, through these practices and rituals. And then I could command the demon, go flatten Lee's tire. Mm -hmm. And then after he fixes that tire, wait about a week and then flatten another tire of his. If something like this worked... Uh, I could see why the CIA would be interested. Oh yeah, and we'll right? do a, we'll do a whole episode on because, that because because this is the this is the perfect crime. It could never be traced back to you. Yeah, and think about the power that that would give you. And this is uh, we talked about how not every old book man managed to make it into the Bible. Mm. One of the books that didn't make it into the Bible was the Testament of Solomon. Okay, and the Testament of Solomon is a story about theurgy. And this is a, a book that was written approximately the same time as the Gospels and approximately the same area as the Gospels, uh, but was not considered canon. It wasn't doctrine. So in, the, in this story, there is King Solomon, and he's friends with this kid, and this kid's getting picked on by a demon. The demon is sucking his thumb to get uh, all of the kid's energy. Okay. And, he, and the demon's also taking half of the kid's wages. <laughs> and so uh, Solomon goes and prays for okay. help and is by the arch, uh, the archangels is given a ring with a magical seal on it, gives the ring to the kid, says, throw this ring at the demon. Kid throws the ring at the demon and prints the seal on the demon. And now this demon is under the control of Solomon. Uh. And then Solomon says to the demon, now I want you to do my bidding. Uh -huh. I want you to take this ring, throw it at the head demon, Beezleball. Mm-hmm. And the demon does that, throws it a beezleball, and now Solomon has an entire legion of demons at his command, which he then uses to construct the Temple of Solomon. Okay. And it's an, it's an amazing story. You can see why it gets left out of the Bible. Yeah. Because it raises many disturbing questions. Yeah. But the ultimate goal of theurgy is, uh, again, this sort of unification with the divine mm. to use to like reach out to the beings and be like, all right, beings, now... I'm going to control you. Okay. 
So is there, because I, I feel like this does come up a lot in movies, is there a kind of an actual spiritual practice that people get up to? Like, I know, I can go to my local astrologer. Mm -hmm. I can go to a numerologist mm -hmm. who's often the astrologer. If you're getting um, into theurgy, you're really quite deep into the occult. Okay. You can dabble in astrology. You can dabble in numerology. Okay, okay. You're not dabbling in theurgy. Right, okay. You're like full-blown once, full you, hit, into it. once okay. you hit theurgy. All right. Now, you mentioned talking to the dead. Yeah. That's an aspect of it too, that's spiritualism. Okay. Again, not really any equivalent in science here, but this is communing and communicating with people who have died. Uh, seances, uh, table tapping. This was huge in the 19th century. You had people like the Fox sisters, who right. we talked about in an earlier episode on ghosts, yeah. who claimed that they were receiving messages. They could ask the dead questions and they would hear tapping right. in, res in response. And the yeah. tapping would then be a kind of code that you could figure out. What I found really interesting in, in when we started investigating this, Arthur Conan Doyle was a big fan yep. of all types of the occult. Yeah, and spiritualism in particular. Spiritualism he was, in particular. He was a big believer in the Fox sisters. Which is so weird given that his main character is the archetype of sort of materialist scientific rationalism. But this speaks to, I think, motivated reasoning. Mm. Like, both were old. Yeah. A lot of the people that we love, <laughs> like a lot of the people that we love are dead now. Yeah. And how much would you like to talk to them? Yeah, no, I see the appeal. I would love to oh do it. Like, there are the so many people I would really love to talk to. And if somebody told me I got away, you'd yeah. want to believe it. Yep. Yep. You would absolutely, to the point where with Conan Doyle, even when uh, one of the Fox sisters came out, Maggie Fox, when she came out 40 years later and was like, We've been faking it the whole time, and this is, this is how I did it. Yeah. I, I used my toe, my double-jointed toe, to do the knocking. Even then, after she came forward, a lot of people, including Arthur Conan Doyle, were like, now you're lying. Right. You were telling us the truth when you said you could talk to the dead. Right. Now you're lying when you said you were faking it. Yeah. Because uh, it was such an interesting time. You could see this competition between the rationalists and the spiritualists, where the spiritualists would go around giving these performances, some of them quite remarkable, of like conjuring ghosts on stage in front of people right. live. And this was yeah. before film. Yeah. So it was sort of extraordinary. Incredible you, stagecraft. Well, that was the thing, because then you'd have the scientists who would follow them around, people like uh, <laughs> Professor Popper, who had uh, a device called Popper's Ghost, okay. where he would set up uh, a, a pane of glass at an angle on stage and have somebody off stage dressed as a ghost, well lit, yeah. which would then cast a reflection off the glass and produce this ghostly image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The difference between somebody like the Fox sisters or the Davenport brothers, who were also claiming to communicate with ghosts, is that Popper would say, no, no, this is how I do it. Right. Pull back the curtain. Look, these are the yeah. physical ways that we're producing these same yeah. effects. The thing that all of these things have in common is that regardless of the specific method that they're using, they're all tapping into that spiritual realm mm -hmm. from the physical realm to send stuff back to the physical realm to get knowledge. And because you have that knowledge, you also have power. Yeah. So why is it important to study the occult? Why is it important for us to study the occult? I would argue that there's basically two relationships that are worth us studying. Okay. If you're interested in conspiracies, this is something that's worth looking at. This is an important concept okay. that needs to be understood. Okay. People believe in the power of the occult. Yeah. Uh, but there, are, I mean, there's, there's two very different ways in that which that can manifest itself. People can be afraid that other people have this power. 
Right. Which then generates uh, moral panics. So that we saw that with the satanic panic of the 80s in the United States. Yeah, right? or witch, witch burnings. Right. So the, the worry was that this... So first of all, the assumption is this is real stuff. Mm-hmm. You need to stay away from it because it's dangerous. But there are people who are dabbling in it, and that is putting us all at risk. Yeah. This goes back to that earlier point about why doctrinal faith matters to some people is because other people's faith can put the community at risk or their lack of faith. I mean, it's sort of interesting. We talked about how the occult is sort of this path that goes a third path between like the doctrinal faith and rationalism. Rationalism and doctrinal faith both have issues with the occult, mm. but the they have different issues. Right. Rationalism's issue with the occult is that it's not based in science and therefore is nonsense and doesn't work and doesn't exist. Right. Whereas doctrinal faiths uh, worry about the occult is that it does work. Yeah. But that is demonic. Yeah, you shouldn't do it. You should be happy with, you should put your faith in God mm-hmm. and not try and screw around with God's plan by cavorting with the devil and getting good things uh, happen to you. Yeah. Bad things that happen to you, you deserve it. You should. They should happen, right? That's right. And so that's, that's, that's one of the things. And we should look at some, like the witch, the witch panics and the yep. satanic panics and like heavy metal music and all these other things. And we will get to all of those. Uh, the other thing is that People themselves can be convinced the power is real, and they want it for right. themselves. And so this means that people who practice the occult can gather real political and social power. And, and in a sense, that's our connection to our very first podcast with Stargate, yep. where the CIA, okay, granted, it was more psychic as opposed to occult, but... There was some occult aspects to it. Yeah, but the idea being... Let's look, tap into this let's realm. Let's tap into it and use it, and, and we will defeat the, the evil Soviets. Yeah. And so uh, there's all sorts of examples of this. Uh, Rasputin. Right. Reagan and astrology. Uh Uh-huh. Modern day examples, people like Steve Bannon or Putin's philosopher Alexander Dugan. These are people who have real deep, strong ties to the occult. And we need to understand those ties in order to to understand them so Uh we can understand the people that they are influencing. Right. Okay. So that's what we'll get to. That's what we're going to get into. All right. I I mean, it seems like there's a lot to talk about here. There is a lot to talk about. Because... real busy. Yeah, I feel like there is even stuff you haven't even mentioned that is going to come up. So much stuff. All right. 